This is the On All Cylinders Podcast. Powered by Summit Racing. Your host for today is Summit Racing's David Fuller. With special guest, Karen Bailey Chapman, Senior Vice President, Public and Government Affairs for SEMA. Welcome to another On All Cylinders Podcast episode. I'm your host for this week, Dave. And uh, this week we've got something that I think is going to, it's going to be very important to all of our listeners across the board. We're going to be talking a little bit about some of the issues that are out there that may be affecting our industry and our hobby. And to do that, we've brought in a special guest this week. Uh, We have Karen Bailey Chapman, Senior Vice President, Public and Government Affairs for SEMA. Karen, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. You know, let's start here. Let's just tell us a little bit about what your role is with SEMA and uh, how you approach your job. And we'll go from there. So, uh, yeah, I'm the head of government and public affairs for SEMA, which means everything that we uh, deal with regarding the you know, government, uh, government regulators, whether it's lawmakers, regulators or so forth. That all is sort of managed through my office and my team. We have an eight person team that's based in uh, both in D.C. as well as uh, one one team member who's uh, in our California office. So. We do it at all all levels of government, uh, local, state, and federal. Uh, so it certainly keeps us busy. And I just celebrated my one year anniversary with SEMA about uh, actually right before the show, about two weeks before the show. So it's been a it's been a whirlwind year, but it's been great, and um, really excited to be part of the team and, and to lead the advocacy efforts. Yeah. So how did you get into this role, and what made you interested in it? So for me, um, you know, there's sort of this dream job that you have when you're in Washington, where you can at one whatever point in your career, if you have the opportunity to match your private passions, your personal passions with your actual um, job, that's what the SEMA opportunity was for me. Uh, it's uh, I'm not a I'm not a gearhead, but I am somebody who has enjoyed off-roading quite a bit. My husband and I have three Jeeps. We also have ATVs and jet skis and stuff. So everything that kind of is fun and difficult and fast, uh, we love to do. I don't, I don't race, not because I don't want to. It's just I don't have time. But uh, maybe one of these days I'll, I'll be able to do that as well. But now I just, uh, I come from a car town. You know, growing up, a lot of my family members uh, worked for General Motors, and my dad was in manufacturing. We had a small family business, manufacturing company, and so. It was a bit of a coming home for me, if you will, joining SEMA and being part of this industry, particularly the aftermarket and the large part uh, that manufacturing plays, obviously, within our industry. So that's that's kind of how the opportunity came about. I've, I've worked in several different industries, a lot of them with complex issues. And that's sort of the, I guess, probably the trend uh, in terms of when you look at my career, started earlier in political advocacy and then translated that into corporate and business issues. And it's been a lot of fun over the past 20 something years. I hate saying that because I, I don't feel like I've been in the, you know, been in politics for that long. But that's really, you know, having the opportunity to really match that personal passion and, and the ability to represent small business and to represent um, manufacturing and especially for a really cool industry. Yeah. You know, of course, we're across the board here, uh, racing, mm-hmm. off-roading, which you said you're mm-hmm. into, Marine. Uh, we're part of all that. And there's issues out there that are affecting all those things. You know, you mentioned the SEMA show, too. You celebrated your anniversary mm-hmm. right before the show. I think a lot of people, when they, they think SEMA, that, you know, that's the first thing that kind of comes to mind is the huge show. Mm-hmm. But we've got the SEMA Action Network. We've got this advocacy arm that you're, you're heading up here. How long has that been something that SEMA has had? And uh, are they developing it more now recently? Or what's that background been? Yeah, the SEMA Action Network's been around for quite a while, um, but we've had pretty explosive growth over the past several years. 
just because of some of the other legislative initiatives that SEMA and PRI have actually taken on on behalf of the industry. But, you know, that's not the only piece of it. We also have a federal PAC. We also launched a super PAC this year, and I can always explain what the difference is later. But, you know, the way that government affairs is done in today's world, it used to be kind of, you know, if you're a lobbyist, you go talk to the speaker, you get the majority leader, the minority leader all sort of lined up and everything was fine. But in today's world of politics, it actually has to be much more of a 360 approach to how we get policy changed, moved. Um, and dealing with all the politics that are around it. So I think today, more now than ever, the individual voices of industry are are so critically important to the work that we do. You know, I sort of look at us as, you know, our team as being the one that provides the introductions, finds the, the pathways, figures out what the challenges are and what we have to overcome or what we actually have to say. Um, but it's not just about us walking into an office and demanding that this is what we'd like and, and you shall change it. And, you know, it's it's really just a 360 approach and a surround sound type of approach that we have to do with government affairs. So, so we're focusing a lot on building out that infrastructure and creating the opportunity for our members' voices to be able to to do the work that they can do because they can tell their members can tell their stories the best. They can tell them way better than we can. We just provide the introduction, the pathway and the strategy and then look for the opportunity for our members to actually utilize their voices. So, so that's really what we're focused on. So building from what was just SAN, the SEMA Action Network, and building out a more robust program and getting out in front, not, not getting out in front of lawmakers, our members, but also the American public, because um, the American public is actually a really critical piece of American politics today, because they're the voters, right? They're the ones that have to get to decide who goes to Washington or to your state capitol. Yeah, and each part of that is informing them on some of these issues and trying to get them involved. And that's what we've been trying to do. We've got a landing page on our site, summerracing.com slash legislative dash alerts, and it's got details on these big issues that are in front of our enthusiasts. We'll jump into those three in particular. The first one is the Right to Repair Act. Tell us a little bit about what that is, why it's needed, and how people can get involved with it. So the Right to Repair Act is is actually a piece of legislation that's been around um, for a while, uh, different iterations of it. But as technology, especially vehicle technology, becomes uh, more computerized, more complex, um, one of the things that we want to make sure of is that, particularly from the aftermarket perspective, is to make sure that our folks have access um, to the systems, to the ECUs, to be able to plug in and, and appropriately access the diagnostics and do the proper calibration so that when we do modify vehicles, whether that's an engine modification or a structural modification like a lift, so that not only the new products can talk to the systems and communicate with the systems and we have access to the systems, but then also to make sure that we calibrate it properly so that they can operate safely. So without that, we certainly sort of run into some issues, I think, sort of down the road, again, as, as computers become more technologically complex and, um, you know, with the, the car manufacturers not really wanting us to always mess with their systems. So they, they like their cars the way they purchase them. But, you know, for us in the aftermarket, we always... We always want to make them a little bit better, a little more fun. Absolutely. And all these things come down to choice. People may be trying to take those choices and abilities to customize away. Um, so this really affects not only consumers, uh, our customers at Summit, but small independent shops too, right? Absolutely. I mean, I sort of if you sort of distill Repair Act down to one piece, you know, sort of one line, and that is just to ensure that our our folks, uh, particularly the shops, have the the access to the data and the systems to be able to continue to modify. You know, really just having that access to to be able to do what they do, which then in turn obviously allows consumers to be able to have that choice to modify, customize their vehicles. So 
if I had to distill it down into one to one thing, that would be is just to ensure access by our builders and, and other shops to, to be able to do that. And the manufacturers to be able to build parts that will actually fit into the systems. Yeah, it's interesting too. I mean, if you're taking the ability away from these independent shops or even people to do it themselves, it's a little bit less competition. And you know, it could be a, a situation where even the prices, you know, you're going to be paying more because there's less people out there that are going to be able to actually work on these vehicles if things were trending the way some folks want it to. So that's what we're trying to prevent from happening. So. People always talk about power and performance and and all that with the parts we carry, but it's also an efficiency thing. A lot of these parts that we offer help to make vehicles run more efficiently, which is another benefit. So again, just taking that potentially out of the hands of consumers, that's why I think uh, right to repair is that's at the top of our landing page. I think there's a right to modify component to that too. Now that was added a little bit later, right? So the way that we look at it and sort of where we're pushing is that Right to Repair Act obviously is really important for our industry and for those that modify and and the consumers that want to do that to their vehicles. So that's sort of, if you will, sort of a baseline for us. And the way I sort of describe it is that gets us about, I don't know, 60, 70 percent of the way there, because then what we're trying to do now is also to get some language in that specifically goes to the right to modify. Because the right to repair, people often sort of you know put it in the bucket of you know collision repair. Uh, you you bust it, you get into an accident, you want to be able to take your vehicle anywhere you want to go, best price. Maybe your insurance company is going to decide where where it goes. So so you've got that right to repair, which is really your repair and replace type part of the industry. On the right to modify, you know, get that's exactly it. It's modifying from the original vehicle product. So we're working to try and get some additional lang- language into the Repair Act so that we also cover that modify. And that modify piece really kind of gets to the heart of, again, those data systems, the access to the ECUs. You know, the OEs tend to say, oh, well, we've got cybersecurity issues. We've got data security issues, data privacy issues. And that's kind of their argument to say that, oh, we shouldn't be, we shouldn't have to give all of these um, independent shops access to the data. You Instead, you should come to the dealership. And so what we're saying is saying like, well, as we know, things are going to, the, the the cars we drive today are, are computers, right? Essentially uh, computers with an engine. And and so we're sort of looking towards the future, sort of creating a pathway and some assurances um, for the future. So look, if Right to Repair Act passes the way it is today, that's a huge win for our industry. But, you know, it's just sort of, sort of my style, their style, like see if my style and I think our industry style. Let's let's get let's ask for a little bit more in terms of um, sort of addressing what what we see kind of coming down down the pike in the future. In the course of championing this act, have you come across any misconceptions out there along the way from people? You know, I think from a consumer perspective, um, we actually done some internal polling when I first started. I kind of wanted to get a baseline of sort of not only where we stand on issues, but how does America feel about these issues. And the reality is that the American consumers and American voters overwhelmingly, I think it's like either 70 or 80 plus percent that when we did the polling said that we should have the right to modify and customize our vehicles. So I think from the, from a consumer general American approach, everybody's kind of on our side, if you will. Um, there's not a lot of issues that that many that many Americans agree on. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not these days. So we're in a pretty great position. I think where we tend to get where where assembling blocks are really with the manufacturers, unfortunately, because they've got their own their own sort of um, business models to to protect. 
Um, they try to utilize things like, again, that data privacy, cybersecurity. If we allow this, then every car is going to get hacked, uh, which is is not the case. So those are kind of sort of the bigger stumbling blocks that we have with the Repair Act. Um, and they certainly have a formidable lobby in Washington as well. And then the other part of it is is other industries. They all see like, hey, everybody likes the car guys. So let's let's attach our, our right to repair onto the legislation. So you see kind of the medical device industry and even the um, uh, like the consumer electronics type industries like your 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 smartphones and all that kind of stuff sort of like, hey, let's attach ourselves to the auto guys in which, you know, doesn't help us necessarily because right. their issues are obviously more unique to their particular products. So we try to try to keep it clean and sort of stick to for at least our purposes to stick with the automotive aftermarket industry. So uh, I'm just curious, you know, reception from lawmakers, does it reflect that sort of 80 percent? Yeah, I mean, look, we have a, a, a significant number of, of co-sponsors on the legislation. It's a bipartisan piece of legislation, which, again, is very unique in American politics today. Uh, you don't see that a lot. Um, but so so lawmakers get it and they also understand the consumer piece of it. Um, but then you also have lawmakers that do have obviously either OEs in their districts or, you know, have some other sort of constituency that may be pushing back on it. But I think when it comes down to the actual American consumer, we're the ones that win on that issue. And so it's how do we continue to elevate that and push that particular point as something that's really important to the voters in, in their respective areas in their states and their districts? But, you know, again, they, they've, they've got uh, lawmakers have to, to work with a lot of different people. You know, we're not the only ones. And so we always have to sort of part of our job is cutting through the noise of, of some of the other, not only the other people that may be sort of skeptical or opposed to right to repair, but also the other issues that are really pressing in, in American politics today, in American culture today. So uh, so we always, so part of the challenge is just cutting through the noise. So another thing we have, you know, is the Preserving Choice and Vehicle Purchases Act. That's another one that we have on our site here. And mm-hmm. we'll work along with you guys to try to get the word out on this uh, to our customers. So give us a little overview of that. Tell us a little bit about why that one is needed. Sure. And I want to say thank you, obviously, to the summit team for all the work that you guys are doing on on behalf of all of these issues that you've partnered with us on. Again, helping get the word out and activating the voices is, is so incredibly important. So I just I wanted to make sure I say thank you before I before I forget we get too far into the interview. We're all, we're all passionate <laughs> about this uh, together. So, you know, I think working together, it makes us stronger. And yeah, we'll continue the fight. We appreciate everything, obviously, that you guys are, are doing as well. Absolutely. Thank you. But yeah, going to preserving uh, choice in, in via, it's a terrible name for sure. <laughs> the preserve, I just call it in the office. I'm like, uh, the preserving choice act. Uh, and everybody kind of knows what I'm talking about. My, my team sort of figured out the care and linguistics. It, it's advanced since it started with a, the Joyce bill, which is the primary sponsor of the bill. Okay. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so, so there's a little bit yeah. of uh, translation rolled that right happens. Off the <laughs> rolled right off the tongue. Um, obviously they didn't call us for, uh, for some naming ideas or marketing, but uh, the Preserving Choice Act is basically, so, you know, when going back again, now this is decades, when the federal government passed the Clean Air Act, and it did allow for an exemption in California to, for California to do its own um, emission standards. Uh, California has a unique set of challenges with its geography, with its population, its industry, its ports, all of that kind of stuff. So, California had an exemption to say that they could go further than what the federal government has set for federal policy. 
But uh, what has happened over those decades is that uh, really what I think a lot of us see in this is California's overreach. And so when it comes to the Preserving Choice Act, uh, again, my my short form on that is the fact that California has 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 initiated has has in place a zero emissions mandate, meaning all vehicles need to be zero emissions by 2035. And it bans the internal combustion engine. And so that's really where and so so that's what California has done. And then as part of the American Clean or the Clean Air Act is the fact that um, California can't just do whatever it wants. It still needs to go to the EPA to get a waiver to allow for the exemptions they're asking for. And so right now that exemption's in front of the EPA for consideration. And so what Congress is doing with the Preserving Choices Act is to say that California or excuse me, EPA shall not grant this this waiver to California. And sort of people say, well, why why does that matter? And it matters for a few reasons. Number one is that since the creation of the federal law, 17 other states have attached themselves to California's emission standards. So there's 17 what we call curb states. And so they have it in all different forms. Some of them automatically adopt. Some of them have to then still have legis- you know, more legislative approval or regulatory structures. But basically, there's 17 states that attach themselves to California's emission standards. When you translate that into numbers, that affects those states encompass about 140 million Americans, which is almost half of our half of our population. And so whenever California does something in this space, it affect, it essentially affects half of America. And so that's why from a from a federal perspective, okay, well, you know, California was given an exemption for California, not for 140 million Americans um, that exist beyond California. And so so that's one of the challenges with that. And the other part of it, too, is is really that ban of the internal combustion engine. You know, I kind of the way I sort of describe it is when when the automobile came to market, uh, government didn't outlaw the horse. They didn't ban the horse and cart. Consumers liked the idea of this new technology. And of course, we've evolved significantly over the past 100 plus years that the internal combustion engine and the car has been around in this country. And so from a SEMA perspective is that we don't believe that government should be choosing the technologies that consumers are going to have to to adopt. Uh, We believe that the market and the innovators and a lot of those innovators are in our in our community, that the market and the innovation should be driving what tomorrow's technologies are. We all want clean air. We all want clean water. But we believe that government should stay out of the decision making on the technology and let the market and the innovators drive how we meet the goals. And so that's really the crux of the issue. It's not that we're anti-EV or anything like that. They're obviously a part of our industry as well. And people like to modify electric vehicles too. There's a number of members making products in that space as well. But government really shouldn't be making the decisions as to what technology is. It's fine to set the goals, let us figure it out as to how we get there. Yeah. And I think there has been some feedback about that. Is this standing in a way of progress? It's not. It's actually opening it up to more development from people. You've got potentially not only electric vehicles and gas power, we've got people testing hydrogen. Like you said, setting that goal, letting the people figure out how to get there. And that's, that's what this Preserving Choice and Vehicles Purchases Act is kind of (laughs) (laughs) You're much better at getting those words to roll off your tongue than I am. (laughs) I had to talk a little extra slowly on that one. So, So, and then we had a final one. It's the the CARS Act. Hey, that that makes it a little bit easier to say. Choice in automotive retail, automotive, I messed it up. Choice in (laughs) automobile retail sales act. 
So give us a little overview of that one. Right. And I sort of see both the CARS Act as well as the Preserving Choice Act as kind of sort Mm -hmm. of two partners when it comes to legislative. And so the CARS Act, what's different in the CARS Act is that so since California did its its emission standards and the zero emissions mandates and the internal combustion ban, the EPA has now come out with federal proposed new federal emission standards that effectively, because of the way that they're written and because of the goals and the timelines in which they've set forward in the proposed rule, basically will now force the entire U.S. into, again, that one technology choice. And so what the CARS Act does is, again, Congress asserting its authority saying, um, actually, EPA, <laughs> we don't agree with you. This is not your authority to make this decision. And it and it essentially, um, so it, it opposes the proposed rules that the EPA put forward earlier this year and also will prohibit the California, you know, basically allowing the EPA to use the Clean Air Act as a mechanism to ban technologies or to choose the technologies for, for, the, for, for the American consumer. So so I, I kind of always sort of keep those two legislative pieces together because one deals specifically with the California waiver. The other CARS Act is the one that goes and goes after the EPA's rules and, and reasserts Congress's authority um, because we do believe that the EPA has overstepped its bounds in terms of these rules. It's sort of we've seen this now in the courts over the past several years where some of their authorities have actually been pulled back by the Supreme Court, you know, cases like West Virginia versus the EPA which is a big one in in, in the um, fossil fuel industry and, and power generating facilities. And so um, so this is Congress saying, you know, we're the ones that make the laws and this is how we feel about it. And if you if we weren't clear before here, here we are again, letting you know how we how we see this. Yeah, it makes sense. And it does seem like those two, the last two acts that we talked about, a piece of legislation kind of are, are working in tandem a little bit. We're all about letting uh, our customers and our industry and our, our hobby people involved making making their own choices. So uh, we appreciate that all these uh, pieces of legislation are out there. So what are some things people can do? Obviously, you know, we have on our site, we have a uh, that landing page I mentioned, summerracing.com slash legislative dash alerts. There's a take action button and you can uh, write your congressperson. What are some What are some other ways people might be able to get involved? So I think, you know, in addition to to taking action, whether that's at from the summit site or from the SEMA Action Network site, which is SEMASAN.com. So that's something that if you sign up for SEMA SAN, you'll actually get action alerts on a lot of different issues that we're working on at all different levels of government. You know, writing those letters is really important because um, offices do take count of the letters coming in on issues and seeing what they're hearing from their constituency. So it is it does matter. But I think also if you're somebody who has a facility, whether you're a small shop, a large retailer, if you're a distributor, warehouse, whatever it may be, a manufacturer, uh, invite your lawmakers uh, to your facility. Develop the relationships with your lawmakers, because I think that's one of the things that, again, others within the industry, particularly the OEs, have done incredibly well. There are obviously huge presences in states and congressional districts, but we also, too, as an industry, are pretty huge pretty huge deal as well. We employ a lot of people, 1.3 million Americans across the country. So invite your lawmakers in and whether that's your local lawmaker, your state lawmaker, or your federal lawmaker, because developing that relationship is really important. And telling the story that you have to tell uh, is also just really, really important. And then the other thing, I'll just put a plug in for if you are a SEMA or a PRI member, 
we have a Washington rally coming up in May, May 8th and 9th in Washington, D.C. And this is where we we take to the Hill. This is where we we have our, our folks show up and, and go to Capitol Hill to lobby their lawmakers directly and to tell their story and, and to share the information that you know, is important to them and, on, and to talk about these issues and talk about how these in- issues impact them. So those are just a couple of ways for folks to get involved. And we'd love for, for people to to be part of all of that, because again, uh, we're just we're just the path creators. We're just the the ones to to help figure out which way which direction to go. Um, but it's that it's really the voices of of companies like Summit and your consumers and the manufacturers that you whose products you you sell. Those are the voices that are really really important when it comes down to to talking to lawmakers about these issues. So on a campaign, I guess we'll call this a campaign. Campaigns like these, how long does something like this usually take? And is there an expiration on it? Or how, how does that work? You know, look, it's um, one of the things. The difference between state lawmaking and federal lawmaking is that state legislatures tend to move a lot faster because they're usually only in session for a couple of months, maybe six months out of the year, couple or year round. So state laws tend to move a lot faster. Federal uh, moves a lot slower in these days, a lot slower than that, which again <laughs> for Say no more. In a community, a community of racers, that's just, you know, right. <laughs> just painful. Yeah. But uh, yeah, basically uh, when legislation's introduced, it's alive for two years uh, when it comes to the federal uh, piece of this, because uh, the bodies turn over every two years. Uh, the one constant in, in when it comes to government affairs, the, the constant is change. Uh, we're always dealing with a new Congress every two years. So uh, we're coming up on the second half of this congressional session. And so legislation could be quick because it's something that's of immediate, say, national security. We've seen that happen. Or it could be just getting making sure the government doesn't shut down. Those are the kinds of things that also get in the way of legislation. Um, but then you've got things like the Repair Act that has been that have been around for quite a while. It could take a couple of years, it could take four years, it could take 10 years. And it just depends on sort of the nature of of what's going on sort of in the macro environment. And then also finding ways to sort of insert the policies into other mechanisms in legislation. So just because you have a standalone bill doesn't mean that that's the bill that's going to pass. Maybe we can get a piece of a bill passed through appropriations because we find a hook in a lawmaker that maybe is sympathetic and able to do that or leadership's allowing us to do it. So it's, it becomes a little bit more complex. And that's when government looks more like a, a, a road course versus an oval <laughs> or a straight line. Um, you're just always kind of looking to tackle these issues from all different ways. So just because we have, say, even like the CARS Act or the Preserving Choice Act, you know, we're still working at different angles to try to to affect some of this policy in other ways through other bills and other actions by Congress. So it's always just kind of poking and pulling and <laughs> inserting. It's sort of like, you know, the, yeah. the the kid that goes to mom and says, mom, can I do this? And she says no. And then they go to dad, dad, can I do this? So we're always kind of looking for, you know, the mom and dad approach of, of how do we um, how do we start, start to to whittle away at the, the stuff that we're trying to get done? Sounds like patience and persistence is, is <laughs> what wins the race in this case. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and you covered it too. I mean, uh, looking at the website, you have a lot of different areas that you guys focus on, emerging technologies, and getting to the emissions area. I mean, there's just a lot. And you're, you guys are juggling a lot of different areas beyond these three, these, uh, three pieces mm-hmm. of legislation we talked about today. That's a lot. So you mentioned earlier the, the PAC and the super PAC. Just real quick. Mm-hmm. Just kind of give us a little overview of what those are, how those work. All right. So uh, let me whittle it down here. So the federal PAC, so the SEMA PAC, which people, if you've been to SEMA, you've probably received an invitation to join the PAC. So SEMA itself cannot donate directly to candidates. We can't sign a check for 
John Smith for Congress. We, we can't, under federal law, do that. But our members can, and they can contribute to our PAC so that it becomes a, you know, basically a tool for SEMA to be able to support the lawmakers that support us. Um, so whether there are new candidates coming into Congress or folks that have been champions for us on Capitol Hill throughout the years. So that's our way to basically pull together the resources of our individual members to then be able to donate and support individual candidates. The super PAC is the the new one that we started and we um, got active for the first time in the Virginia state elections this past fall as sort of a pilot program with it. And that super PACs basically have um, a lot more freedom. Uh, there's no limit on how much uh, we can accept from donations, um, unlike the federal PAC, which also ha- which has limits. There's a lot of limitations in the federal PAC, but very important. The super PAC doesn't have limits in terms of the amount of money we can accept. We also don't have limits on the fact that we can accept corporate dollars. So if a company wants to to support the efforts, um, we can accept those checks and uh, we just have to, you know, obviously do the appropriate filings. But what it does is it creates the ability for us to run what's called an independent expenditure campaign for a candidate. Now, we can't coordinate with the candidate. We can't call them and say, hey, uh, what do you need? Like, what can't you afford? And like, we'll plug in this strategy. We can't have that conversation. But what we can do is do our own research and do our own work to educate on an issue that matters. So what we just did in Virginia is that we actually we played in four Senate races, four key Senate races within the Virginia campaigns, the, the legislative campaigns for Senate. Senate candidates, and we actually, um, three of those candidates were successful. And what we did in those particular districts was raise the issue of the fact that Virginia was a carb state. A lot of Virginians didn't know that. And that they actually also now have an internal combustion engine ban that's going to be coming online in 2035. When we first went into poll in Virginia about a year ago, actually, 80% of of Virginians had no idea had no idea that they were attached to California, had no idea that this policy was coming down the pike for them. So we did a pretty hefty um, legislative education plan last year during their legislative session. And then we did the super PAC campaign during the elections, basically saying, vote for the candidate that's going to preserve your choice. Vote for the candidate that's not going to sort of acquiesce um, Virginia's laws to California. And so in the three of the four uh, districts that we targeted, um, three of those candidates were successful. And we were able to do that parallel to whatever they were talking about. They they talk about their issues and whatever they want to do. Um, but we really brought that issue to the forefront in the Virginia elections this year. And when we did a little sneak peek of polling in those four districts about two weeks before the election, only 16%, roughly 16% of the voters had no idea about the issue. So we went from 80% of people having no idea down to 16% in which, you know, the majority of Republicans and independent voters um, sided with us on the issue, which we expected to be the, the case, uh, just based again on some of the polling that we've done. So so it allows us just to be a lot more flexible to invest some more dollars into really having an impact on campaigns uh, versus just, you know, again, the, the check to the candidates, obviously important, but also having the super PAC and independent expenditures really a really important tool for us to have in our in our sort of political arsenal, if you will. Well, thanks for educating us on that. Most importantly, just thanks for all the work that you and your team are doing. And hopefully those that are listening will get out and get to those websites, summitracing.com slash legislative dash alerts. And uh, what was the website that you had for this? Yeah, Mm semasan.com. So semasan.com. So SEMA Action Network. You can just Google SEMA Action Mm -hmm. Network. I'm sure it'll pop up. I think our, our digital capabilities should have it pop up pretty easily. But yeah, yeah, semasan.com. And, uh, you know, just really appreciate 
having the opportunity to talk with you. And we absolutely love representing. I absolutely love representing this industry because like I said, something that's near and dear to my heart, but we have an entire team that just absolutely loves everything we do every day, despite the, the difficult environments we're working in. You know, it's just great to be able to represent this industry and to be able to tell our story. We're so glad to have you and, and thank you for joining us here as well, Karen. It's been, uh, been very interesting and informative and uh, we really appreciate your time. Thank you. There's more to come. <laughs> This has been the On All Cylinders podcast. Powered by Summit Racing. Check out new episodes coming soon at onallcylinders.com. Onallcylinders.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.